And I wanted to continue in that vein a little bit and spend some time talking about uh, the notion of karma because the Buddha had a very different notion of karma than we sort of have inherited. Uh, we, today, we've, it's, karma is sort of all mushed up with New Age stuff and there are other spiritual traditions which have um, had teachings find their way into Dharma circles and often, um, well, there's no real labeling on spiritual teachings the way there is on the back of food boxes, you know. This is 40% Buddha Dharma, this is 20% uh, Advaita Vedana, 15% Christian mysticism, and 10% bullshit. I mean, it's just, you know, um, you don't get those kind of labelings. So when we try to um, find guidance for our own practice, and we look to the tradition, sometimes uh, it can be a bit, it can be a bit muddied. Uh, and confusing because conflicting teachings often get presented. So I wanted to talk about karma, and I think I'll start by talking about the the um, what the situation was that the Buddha found himself in, um, because a lot of what he of what his teaching um, his teaching didn't spring from nowhere. It it arose in a relationship with the society that he found himself in. And that society at the time uh, was largely um, uh, just past tribal organization and, the, and was run by the, the Brahmins who were the uh, spiritual caste, they were the priests of the society. Um, and they were the, the people who uh, were in possession of the rituals that um, kept a proper relationship to the gods. It became part of the caste system. The Brahmins were the spiritual teachers and leaders, and then there were the, the warriors and the, the merchants and the workers. And of course, we all know about the, the people who had no caste at all. But the, the religion of the time was a, a sacrificial religion, um, and uh, the idea was to keep the gods happy because the gods were the ones who kept the universe going okay. And um, so the Brahmin families, uh, you know, they, they would teach um, generation to generation uh, the Vedic hymns and, and rituals. And the correct performance of a ritual was called karman in the Sanskrit. Sanskrit, and you know, if you would do, for example, I'm, I'm not sure they had rain dances, but it was some. It would be a, a ritual. You know, the idea of the sacrifice was to make your crops grow and and your your animals be healthy and your your family be happy and wealthy and prosperous and. The ritual sacrifices included everything from, you know, mustard seeds and stuff thrown on a fire, fire to animal sacrifices at times. Um, and of course, if you did a rain dance or something and nothing happened, that was, I guess that was bad karma. Um, 
and it meant that it wasn't performed correctly. There was, there was a big emphasis on the payoff. Um, you would do these, these rituals and you would go to the, to the Brahmins for blessings of marriage and stuff, and, and if things were, were not done you know, correctly, then, that was the theory, then the, then the payoff wouldn't be, wouldn't be there. So they developed a lot of specialization. There were um, priests who, who were able to, who focused specifically on the pronunciation of certain uh, vowel sounds and mantras and, and the pitch at which they were to be delivered and the length of time. And the, but it was all focused on the external behavior. It was all oriented towards the payoff down the line that somehow the external world would, re would reward us for um, relating to the, to the gods in an appropriate manner. Well, as the Buddha did with a lot of things, he adopted the, the terminology of the time and, of, and, and often, um, well, he, he um, Kind of made fun sometimes of uh, of some of the terms. So, for example, some of you may be familiar with the the word upadana, which uh, in uh, Sanskrit was the and in the Brahmin tradition was the word for uh, performing the rituals of tending the three sacred fires that were in the households. There was fire of creation, and I think there was a family for the ancestors. I can't remember what all three were, but the idea was they had to be kept tended constantly, these three fires. And the word was upadana, it was fueling them. And the Buddha turned, just took that and said, ah, fueling the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, this is upadana. So when we hear in our teachings upadana, it's grasping. It's translated as grasping, and the Buddha meant it uh, to be that way. But he was flipping the, the meaning of the, uh, of the term as it was commonly understood. You know, he would take the term Brahman, um, and that was a, the term that was used to the people who inherited by birth the status of Brahman. And he would say, to me, a Brahman is one who has attained realization. So he was turning it inward and not just outward. Well, the same with karma, or karma uh, in the Pali, which was the language that is apparently fairly close to what the Buddha spoke, uh, kama. And he said, he flipped it and he said, kama is intention, simply intention. It's not the outward performance, the outward behavior. You can say, have a nice day. And your heart can mean, have a nice day. And you can say, have a nice day, you SOB, because you just ruined my day. And not the same thing. So it's not the outward behavior, it's the inward intention. And this has led to some confusion, because we also hear the, the notion of karma being described as sort of our fate. It's what happens to us. So on the one hand, we get karma or kama as intention. On the one hand, it's the payoff, the kind of what goes around comes around. What you reap, what you sow, it's the, what we get back. And I'm, in my view, and this is a, this is a personal view, I'm not sure that uh, 
it's shared by uh, uh, people who are, are deeply steeped in the Theravadan tradition. This may be a bit uh, before uh, the, the monastics, uh, today's monastics, but the, um, the confusion comes when you say, well, you know, I was, I was standing on a beach and, and here came, comes the tsunami, that must be my karma. It's the karma of, it's what happens to me. And it's, it's a holdover from, it seems to me, the Brahmin's notion that the purpose of action was to create good, you know, good feedback. Well, good karma, of course, for us is the stuff we like and bad karma is the stuff we don't like. But this is sort of new agey in a way. The Buddha was talking about karma as intention. Intention, I tell you, is karma. Intending what one does karma by way of body, speech, and mind. Now you can go through, and, and, and he's had a, a different word for the fruit of karma. And that was vipaka, and that's a different. It's it's that may be more like the payoff. Um, <coughs> you can go into the to the Pali Canon, which is the collection of scriptural texts that uh, are the recordings of the Buddha's teachings and find different things and find different confusing kinds of things. And so I want to say something about the condition of the Pali Canon, the teachings as they come to us. I guess most of us are familiar with the story about how the Buddha died and shortly after his death there was a, a, a huge um, convention of the fully awakened arhats of the, of the day, and I guess it turned out to be 500 on the nose. <laughs> well, 499 before, you know, the, the day before was 499, and then Ananda woke up just before the, the conference <laughs> so that he could then appear and uh, recite the uh, Buddha's Dharma talks as he recalled them, and, the, and the, the story is that he had a audiographic memory. He remembered everything he heard, or he was pretty good, or he'd spent 45 years hearing them over and over again, so he <laughs> sort of got the gist. Um, and these things, because at the time um, the society did not rely on printed material, and that was risky, too. If you write, wrote it down on a palm leaf, then the termites eat it and it's gone. So it was, they were memorized and recited um, from one generation of monastics to another for several hundred years before they were written down. And then over the course of the next 2,000 years, they come to us in the form of Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation or Tan Jeff's translation on the internet. And there's sort of a tendency to assume a kind of a fundamentalism about these texts, that they, that they um, haven't been stepped on. In, you know, 
it's, it, on the one hand, it's sort of a 2,500-year game of telephone, you know, telephone, <laughs> you know, and, and, and yet we, we uh, I have, um, there's a story in, at the time of the Buddha's death, he was, you know, lying, lying there and he spoke his last words, and in the sutta, it describes he closed his eyes and he entered the first jhana and the second jhana up to the eighth jhana and then he backed down to the first jhana and then up to the fourth jhana and then he and then he passed on and i remember asking a teacher once uh, a, a monastic once how how did we know that and the response was well anuruddha could read minds and i thought well you know if you buy that it makes sense, um, not so much for me. So what's the condition of the canon? You know, if you look at the kinds of things that are in here, here's a, here's a description of the great man. This is a description of the Buddha and the speaker is trying to argue against a notion that the Buddha was not a great, ma a great man. Okay. He possesses, you know, Master Gautama possesses the 32 marks of a great man. Um, on the soles of his feet, there are wheels with a thousand spokes and ribs and hubs all complete. He has projecting heels. His hands and feet are soft and tender. He has netted hands and feet, sort of like a duck or a... Okay. His feet are arched. He has legs like an antelope's. When he stands without stooping, the palms of both his hands touch and rub against his knees. His male organ is enclosed in a sheath, I guess sort of like a dog or a horse. He's the color of gold. And it goes on, you know, he has... Uh, he has a large tongue, his eyes are deep, he has eyelashes of an ox. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you hold that? And what does it mean about, about this? You know, at the time, um, there were other teachers around, and some of these teachers would make claims. I know all, see all, nothing escapes, you know, I'm... So the Buddhist followers had to, or had to, but they, I, I assume the notion of the Buddha's omniscience was just a my guru's as just as good as your guru kind of thing. And these kind of notions, in my view, and in the view of some uh, contemporary scholars, uh, kind of crept into the canon in, in a variety of ways. Um, and so, in looking through the canon, um, we can find something like, like this. This is uh, uh, a piece on karma. Buddha speaking, he says, Monks, the taking of life, when indulged in, developed, and pursued, is something that leads to hell, leads to rebirth as a common animal, leads to the realm of the hungry ghosts, the slightest of all the results coming from the taking of life is that when one becomes a human being, it leads to a short lifespan. Stealing, when indulged in, he's going through the precepts here. 
developed and pursued leads to hell, etc. The slightest of the results coming from stealing is that when one becomes a human being, it leads to the loss of one's wealth. Illicit sexual behavior. The least, the slightest of all the results coming from illicit sexual behavior is that when one becomes a human being, it leads to rivalry and revenge. Telling falsehoods. The results of telling falsehoods leads to being falsely accused. Divisive tail-bearing. When one becomes a human being, that leads to the breaking of one's friendship. So if you're losing friendships, you, you might say, ah, because in my past life I used, I used harsh speech. Frivolous chatting. I'm never sure that there is such a thing. <laughs> you know, um, anyway, I'm not, sure what, I'm not sure how to recognize it. Uh, because often frivolous chatting is you know, building a, a bond and just maintaining contact can, can be serving a purpose. But that leads to uh, uh, hearing words that you shouldn't take to heart. <clears throat> the drinking of fermented and distilled liquors, the, the slightest leads to hell and rebirth is a common animal. And the slightest of all results coming from drinking fermented and distilled liquors is that when one becomes a human being, it leads to mental derangement. <laughs> now these are, these are reminiscent, uh, you know, these are the payoffs down the line. I think the, uh, the Buddha was not so much looking at that, and I look at this and I think, well, you know, if the notion at the time was that karma, um, what happens to us is the result of what we've done, this, this, this could creep in as people try to clarify, you know, try to add a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We all do that. You know, we see our teachers now. I mean, Jack tells beautiful stories. I mean, there's a wonderful and illustrating the Dharma with, with stories, but the stories aren't necessarily from the canon. And so, you know, over the course of 2,500 years, I think my view, some of these things have sort of crept in there. And there's this difference between inward karma, the payoff, how it affects us, and how it plays in the world. This is a, a fairly interesting, and I find a fun little uh, sutta, where the Buddha was asked, Master Gautama, there are some priests and contemplatives who are of this doctrine, this view. Whatever an individual feels, pleasure, pain, or neither, Whatever an individual feels is entirely caused by what was done before. Now, what does Master Gautama say? So he's saying, you know, our experience in the world, the pleasant, the unpleasant, is this done? Now, my wife is, uh, some of you know, know her, and she's been ill for some years. And she wrote a book uh, titled How to Be Sick, and the consequences that people write to her and say, I'm, I'm sick. And they recount stories and um, ask questions. And she gets a, quite a few um, emails from people who say, I, I can't understand why I'm sick, you know, is this the result of something I did in a past life, and, uh, you know, what does the Buddha say? To which she says, bodies get sick. No. But that would be 
pain is this due to what was caused before in the Buddha. The Buddha then says, there are cases where some feelings arise based on bile. You yourself should know how some feelings are arise based on bile. Even the world is agreed on how some feelings are based on bile. So any priests and contemplatives who are of the doctrine and view that whatever an individual feels is entirely caused by what was done before, they slip past what they themselves know. They slip past what is agreed upon by the world. Therefore, I say those priests and contemplatives are wrong. And they hear a list of things that he says. There are cases where some feelings arise based on phlegm, followed by all the text. Some based on internal winds. Some based on bodily humors. Some based on the change of the seasons. From uneven care of the body from harsh treatment, and some from the results of karma, or kama. You yourself should know how some feelings arise from the results of karma. Even the world has agreed on how some feelings arise from the results of karma. So any priests or contemplatives who are of the doctrine and view that whatever an individual feels is entirely caused by what was done before slip past what they themselves know, slip past what is agreed on by the world, Therefore, I say those contemplatives are wrong. So some things are the result of karma, but, you know, uh, being on the beach, maybe not. With, when, the, when the tsunami comes, you know, is it my karma to lose my job because last lifetime I was a mean boss and fired people? I suppose you can adopt that view, but from my, my point, a view this would be um, a speculative view. Um, and the Buddha was not so much interested in speculative views, even though some of them may have crept into the canon. The Buddha was talking about, he said, I, and I have to look this up, he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, or maybe he said, I teach two things. Suffering and the end of suffering. Whether that's one thing or two things, one thing. I guess if you understood dukkha fully, suffering fully, the, the dissatisfaction that we live our life with, if we understood that fully, we, we would understand the end of it. We would understand the conditions which give rise to it and the ending of it. So this, you know, the speculation about if you, if you drink uh, alcohol and use intoxicants, you'll be reborn as mentally deranged not so much about dukkha. You know, it's a, it's, it's, it, it seems to me a speculative view. But these things are out there and in circulation, and some of them uh, are currently part of the Vedanta interpretation, and so they find their way into the, into the um, Dharma teachings as well because they're presented by people heard by teachers, and not distinguished as clearly as they could be. And it leads, in my view, to confusion. Is karma our intention, or is karma the results, the fate, the, the, uh, the environment that we encounter? And I think this distinction between inner and outer karma is really, really crucial. The Buddha says, I think from the Buddha's point of view, uh, karma 
the consequences of karma apply to who we turn ourselves into, not what we, you know, what blowback or pushback we get from the world. Sometimes, as the Buddha said, some things are the result. Excuse me, the results of our intention. If we treat people nicely, presumably we will be responded to uh, in a kindly fashion. If we're always snappish and cranky and unpleasant, um, well, we'll probably, we will, there will be some consequence. Some things are the result of, of our intention. But one of the things is that um, what we contemplate, what we, what we lay down is the, the potential for who we're going to be next. But this is the Buddha. Whatever a monk keeps pursuing with his thinking and pondering, that becomes the inclination of his awareness. If a monk keeps pursuing thinking imbued with renunciation, abandoning thinking imbued with sensuality, his mind is bent by that thinking imbued with renunciation. If a monk keeps pursuing thinking imbued with non-ill will, abandoning thinking imbued with ill will, his mind is bent by that thinking imbued by non-ill will. So our intentions condition who we are going to be. And we create mental habits, uh, mental in you know, habitual intentions that we, that we bring to each, uh, each moment. There was, there was a 60 Minutes show uh, a few weeks ago, maybe some of you saw it, a uh, collection of people who remember everything about their, about their lives. They're stunning. A- anybody see that? And, and, and th- they're like identified maybe seven or eight of them. It's a small number. There, I'm sure there are others. Anybody here remember every moment? I mean, literally every moment. They, would, they put these people together and they would ask them things like, what happened on April 14th, 1982? And they'd go, oh, that was the day I went to da-da-da and I had salmon for lunch and you know, we went to the show. And one of the guys was a, a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And, you know, he, he knew every game and every play. He said, I remember in that play, Roger Staubach was hit, he was, had a concussion, he was on the sidelines. You know, and they they called up the uh, the video because it was a CBS thing, and they, there was Roger Staubach on the sidelines, and he was describing just what was going on. They said, "What is the best March 15th in your life?" And the people <laughs> and the people would go back and they say, "Oh, that was 1982. It was when my girlfriend, you know, really was isn't that right? It was in the that's what they were. It was it was just amazing. They they tend to be." They tend to be a bit obsessive-compulsive. <laughs> and apparently it has to do with the part of the brain. They, they, they're starting to try to figure out how this, this works. And so they put these people in the CAT scan machine, and they, they found that the part of the brain that is associated with obsessive-compulsive behavior is a little bit larger. It doesn't take much in the brain, I guess. A little bit larger is a lot larger. And they all tended to have this, this uh, one woman, you saw her closet, and she had, she had a lot of, her closet was the size of my bedroom. 
and she had rows of shoes, and each shoe, the toe was pointing next to the other one faced the other way, so the heel, so she saw the toe and the heel of each one of these. And they were organized in, you know, the colors of the rainbow. So there was, a, one of the women was a violinist, and she was, she was just lovely and bright, and, and for her, what struck me, for her, she said, because she can remember every, everything. She knows that that will be her, her inheritance. So she, she, she aims her actions so that when she recalls them, they will not cause her suffering. She didn't quite put it that way, but that was, that was how she described it. So it, you know, just recollecting that. Now we, you know, we have, um, well, I, I, I'm hoping at the end I could make some comments about karma because you're just you're bringing up so many interesting things. You certainly welcome. Okay. You can bring them up even as we speak, oh. as I speak. Well, could I say? Please. I've been. I, I when I was 15, I got into you know started learning about. Well, actually, first Taoism when I was 14, but then I did a term paper in ninth grade and started reading some of the Taoist texts. But, but anyway, so let's just say you know I'm 55. Of different things, but my understanding of karma, at least what I've learned, but I'm saying also I've put this against my own experience. There's three kinds of karma. There's the storehouse karma, which is supposed to be from all the different lifetimes, which is almost impossible to eliminate mm -hmm. because it just keeps adding on. And then you have the, kar the fate karma that's allotted for like this lifetime. And then there's the daily karma, which goes with what you were saying with intention, because it's how we're acting in the moment, mm -hmm. and what type of karma we're creating. Mm -hmm. I think, therefore, that's why this is the realm of suffering. You know, there's no way around it, but it's how we, our relationship to that and how we treat other people. But I, I went through, not too long ago, uh, breast cancer and had to go through the long almost five months of chemo and radiation, you know, plus they have you on steroids. You know, there's so many medications, and I was sleep-deprived for okay. three years. Anyways, but in the process of that, I was actually shown my most recent past life, because I've also had mm -hmm. lots of health karma in this mm -hmm. life. I have fibromyalgia, and just mm -hmm. from a young age, I've had lots of pain. And as a child, I often thought that I had um, died in some kind of a violence. Way. Mm -hmm. But I also knew that I must have had some kind of spiritual practice. So I was actually um, shown my last life, who my teacher was, and um, and that I was at. Well, I probably shouldn't say how, but I was because of the way I died in the previous. That accounted for a lot of the physical pain. I wasn't mm -hmm. shown, you know, the reasons with the karma, because I think mm -hmm. what you're probably getting at is that the mind could get in and try and analyze or this or justify and that really it just comes down to the moment to moment practice, the loving kindness, the intention. That, that's all I wanted to say. Well it is that and for, for those of us who don't have, who, who don't know for ourselves past lives, all multiple heavens that are described in some of the suttas, uh, we're left with, I'm, in my own practice, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not, I was not born and 
socialized in uh, a society full of Indian metaphysics. I tend to be, uh, you know, as the Buddha encouraged us to to rely on our own understanding, because our own salvation has has to be worked out by us. And if we engage in speculative views about things we don't know, uh, we're liable to be lost and confused. The notion of karma, in this way, from past lives, it, it allows. Um, uh, us to be, some people to be more at peace with the way things are, but it also requires um, us to accept some metaphysical notions about the way things are that mm, I don't have any real experience of or proof for, and so I find it difficult myself. Uh, and I, and, um, Compassion. The Buddha, the Buddha described compassion, karuna, as the trembling of the heart in the presence of suffering, when we recognize suffering, and our heart opens to it, and we 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 resonate with it, um, and that certainly, um, you know, some sometimes we can use notions of karma to help us see the suffering of others. But for me, it's, it's I, I just recognize that we're all in the same boat. You know, the first noble truth is that suffering comes with the territory. So we're all in the same boat. None of us are not in that boat. Um, but but if, if you focus on intention, when the, car, when the Buddha said intention is karma, intention, we, we, but we, what, what we attend to, we become. Um, so even, you know, what Louise Owens, the violinist, uh, which her strategy was to not do anything that would, that she would have to look back on with regret. So the idea is to cultivate um, skillful intention. The Buddha does say, you know, there are other places in the canon, and I've, I, find, I find mostly the canon is very helpful, but there are some things like that, that I find can be confusing. He says there are four kinds of karma that can be understood, and he talks about dark karma with dark result, bright karma with bright result, karma that is dark and bright with dark and bright result, and then karma that is neither dark nor bright, with neither dark nor bright result, leading to the ending of karma. So the end of karma, when if, you, if your interpretation is that karma is some external 
thing. And this body is karmic payback for having wanted to be reborn. I, I don't have a memory of that wanting to be reborn. Um, but that's the interpretation in the, uh, in, in the Theravada tradition, is that this, this uh, birth um, is the result of the intention uh, to be reborn. So what is karma that's dark with dark result? There's the case where a certain person fabricates an injurious bodily fabrication, does something. Or an injurious verbal fabrication says something that harms another. Or an injurious mental fabrication. Even, even angry thoughts. Buddha said in the Metta Sutta, you know, let none wish harm upon another. You know? And wishing them to get the, what their just desserts may be a form of that. Um, that person experiences feelings that are exclusively painful like those of the beings in hell. This is called karma that is dark with dark result. And the karma with bright that's bright with bright result, he experiences feelings that are exclusively pleasant, like those of the ever-radiant devas. And then karma that's dark or bright, or dark and bright with dark and bright result, recognizes to me that an awful lot of things we do result from mixed intention. There can be many intentions that go into a particular action. You know, um, I go to work because I need to support myself, but I'm actually speaking at this particular meeting this way because I want to. I, I want to object to a particular notion, or I want to show off a little bit, or um, whatever. So there can be many different. Um, Intention. So dark karma that's dark and bright that's mixed. But one of the things that's that's striking is the karma that's neither dark nor bright, with neither dark nor bright result, and leads to the end of karma. And what 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 is the end of karma? Now the Buddha, in describing the his time leading up to his awakening, he he describes uh, a point where he had a realization that some of what he did was, for, was intended for the benefit of himself and others, and some was intended for the harm of himself, for, that was not for the, to be for the benefit of himself or others and could result in harm. And he said, why not just abandon those actions? Now, he described the word as action, and karma often is translated, well, it's translated as action. You'll hear people say karma means action. And, and action, well, action is, um, that was the ritual action. That's where the word came from. Uh, you know, the Brahmanic ritual action. Um, but it's also the intention which spawns the action, and for the Buddha, the intention uh, was, what was, was what was important. So he said, you know, just abandon those intentions that are not for the benefit of myself or others. Pretty tall order. Pretty tall order. He said the same thing to the Kalama. We all know the Kalama Sutta where he showed up in town and 
the Kalama said, oh, you know, there was a guy here last week and he was saying he was right and there's, you know, the guy's coming next week and I'm sure he's going to say he's right and everybody else is wrong. Why should we believe you? And the Buddha said, you're right, it's confusing. He said, so what you should do is when you know in your heart that what you're about to do is for the benefit of yourself and others, go forward. And when you know it's not, restrain that behavior. You know, he's talking about recognizing the intention because you can have a pure intention to help and things, you know, there's many a slip twixt cup and lip. Things can happen. But if your intention was pure and you did what you could, you may feel sadness if the result doesn't come out correctly, but not remorse. So on the night of the Buddha's awakening, he claims that he came to an end of karma, which would mean, in his terms, an end of intending. So what what forms the basis then of, I mean, what moves him through the world? My take is that when there is an abandonment of both bright and dark karma, good and bad karma, good, the skillful intentions, the Buddha identified, well, the unskillful intentions, greed, ill will, and cruelty, which we don't often identify ourselves as cruel. But he's talking about a wish for, an intention for, a, you know, unpleasant experience to wish for another. And that doesn't mean, you know, my granddaughter gets her, got her flu shot and she screamed and yelled and she didn't want to be hurt and the, the needle stuck her. And she, but the intention was to protect her. The intention wasn't to just stick her with a pin, it was to protect her. So good intention is non-greed or generosity, non-ill will uh, or metta and non-cruelty or compassion. Those would be the skillful intentions. Well, actually, those start to approach uh, the Brahma-viharas, which would be, which would, in effect, stand in for intention. Equanimity would be the state of being where one does not cling to or resist the experience that presents itself. The experience is engaged fully. There isn't an indifference or a whatever kind of thing. And in this sense, there's, um, you know, true equanimity is unconditioned. It doesn't matter what the conditions are. Equanimity would be the state of abiding. The presence of a another being, friendliness would emerge, would arise naturally because there wasn't any wanting, longing, or aversion. If that being were experiencing joy and happiness, we would resonate with that and would experience mudita, and mudita would be the, the motivating, I guess you could say, intention. And if the being were suffering, and one encounters suffering, the resonant response is compassion. 
And the, the, the general idea is that we would cultivate those states by practicing the renunciation of the unskillful states, just the abandonment of them. So this, the uh, renunciation is a, is a skillful intention. Mm. Intention, show, please. But you were talking about absence of intention. Is that, is that equanimity where things well, arise because you're not, it's not that you're actively in, intending the, one thing or another, the end, but you're... Mm. Well, he talks about the end of karma. I would, I would, I would think he's talking about the end of um, the kinds of in, of intention, both bright and dark, both good and bad. But something motivates. Some there is, you know, it's a it's a tricky spot to find what we're talking about. But if you are if if self interest is not present. Compassion arises when we're seeing another being, not through our own need and what we want from them or don't want or want them not to be. Compassion just arises, you know. Um, and karma, in that sense, is not the payoff for that. It just is itself. There's the the karma. He's talking about the. Right. The 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 awakened state. Uh, is one where karma has ended. He talks about the clearly um, leading to the ending of karma, the ending of of that kind of intention. And that doesn't mean the body goes. <clears throat> that do, I mean, the Buddha lived forty five years or so after after his awakening. The Buddha said. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and have my actions as my arbitrator, whatever I do for good or evil. To that I will fall heir. And in the, sen- in the sense that I'm talking about it, he means I will, I will create those habits in myself. Not that, you know, Bernie Madoff goes to his deathbed We, there's a tendency for us to want justice in the world. And so karma becomes the, um, the power that sort of stands in for God in, in, uh, uh, in theistic religions that pays off, you know, for, for you know, when, you, when you've been bad and good. We tell our kids, I, I, you know, we try to remind them life is not fair. I mean, because, you know, but then, of course, we get older and we forget that. <laughs> and we come up with notions of how fairness, you know, balance out and karma will, well, they'll pay for it in the next life. You know. But the issue is about our own relationship to suffering and the end of suffering. And the cultivation, it's not be compassionate. It's cultivate compassion. It's not, you know, be loving and kind, be friendly. It's cultivate these states. You know, um, it's not be mindful. It's cultivate mindfulness over time. 
It's like learning uh, a, a language or learning to play a musical instrument. It's not play the piano, <laughs> unless you're the music man and you have mastered the think system. <laughs> Remember the music man? You know, he comes to town and he, he uh, I guess he sold the um, uniforms and instruments and, and then they didn't show up. And so he said he was teaching the think system. And of course, at the end, it worked, because <laughs> it was a musical. <laughs> you know. So intention shows up all over the place in the Buddhist teachings. Right intention is the second element of the Eightfold Path. And it follows, or the first element is right understanding. Our intention follows our understanding. Our karma follows our understanding. It, you know the story of the guy who's walking through the woods and it's dusk and he sees a snake in the road and he jumps, startled and jumps back and then he sees and it's just a rope. Well, in the delusional state where you thought it was the snake, you acted out of that delusion. You know, if you think so-and-so is acting to, to get back at you or whatever, maybe or maybe it's just the rope in the road. When you act out of delusion, you're going to generally act unskillfully. So the Eightfold Path, which describes the, the qualities of a, an awakened being, it's the path, but it's also the goal. A fully awakened being would uh, right understanding, skillful intention an understanding and attention that lead to the cessation of dukkha, or at least don't add to it, right speech, action, and livelihood, and then the meditative uh, states, mindfulness, stability, or concentration, and effort. So it's, a, you know, right intention is, is right in there. It's one of the main elements, and if you, if you, um, of the Eightfold Path, and if you combine it with uh, the, the sila elements, the, the ethical behavior elements, the precepts, right speech, right action, right livelihood, it's half the Eightfold Path. It's a major part of our practice, cultivating intention, cultivating skillful intention. <coughs> it's one of the skandhas. Those of you who are familiar with those, I can just run through them really briefly. The Buddha was talking about the, the, the aspects of our being that we cling to. Body, Anybody here knock out one of these? I guess you can't raise your hand. <laughs> the devas in the room <laughs> are missing the... You know. And then, and then uh, Vedana, feeling tone. All experience comes with pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone. Sanya, or perceptions, the mind labels its experience. I mean, we try to figure things out. We work to figure things out, to get a map of our experience in our mind. We know how to get home. We've got a map in our mind of the roads and the way to get home. We have a map in our minds about how to behave in, in public and in private and with our co-workers and friends, and we have all these understandings. And then the sankaras, which are often translated as mental formations, but really are volitional formations. They're the desires, the wants, the intentions and the, and the consciousness, the knowing of 
of the experience that we have. So it's, it's a, an essential part. This intention is an essential, essential part of us. It's the second element in, in the chain of dependent origination, which I'm not even going to get to, but if you're familiar with it, it follows ignorance. Sankara follows avijja, follows ignorance. Very similar to understanding and intention, right? Understanding and intention. The intention follows our understanding. So in addition to practicing um, the meditation the way we do, it's helpful to, to look for guidance from a teacher who's awake. That's the Buddha. And the only difficulty, of course, is in being able to sort through some of what's in the canon, which may be, have sort of seeped in there by well-meaning uh, monks and nuns over the course of 2,500 years, hoping to clarify their own understanding. The Buddha, the key is the Buddha said his teachings are about suffering and the end of suffering. And so karma is about suffering and the end of suffering. And it's about the end of suffering by abandoning unskillful intention. We inherit our past behavior, our tendencies, our habits. So usually at the uh, at the end of of um, isn't that the Catholic Church where they end they say you know go forth and sin no more. <laughs> so we can go forth and. And, uh, what? Not cling anymore. <laughs> Go forth and cling no more. Um, this is not, you know, to, to limit the notion of karma just to intention. It's what the Buddha was talking about as I understand it. And it sits as a whole and it's very simple and doesn't confuse the intention with some environmental result. You know, you got hit by a car because you ran over somebody with your chariot. That kind of, that kind of thing. Or I'm sick because I, I did something wrong. I'm being punished. And it is in accord with, with, uh, with the Dharma, as, certainly as I understand it. So let me just take a moment and see um, kind of questions or comments about this. Ah. Well, I was going to throw in the Jewish mother comment that when I was a kid, which was sometimes when I would hurt myself, for some reason my mother would say, see, there's God punishing me. Mm-hmm. But that, that guilt thing is the guilt? really a yeah. negative. It's, it's, it's a habit that we can abandon. It's a habit that we can abandon. Please. Did, did the Buddha have any um, that have the concept of that you were that we kind of commonly think of as karma as you you do an action or you have an intention and then as a result some other something else happens to you that did result from the way that you behaved. That was the that was the situation he found himself within with the Brahmins. He knew that was the that was the understanding of the Brahmins. You act in a particular way, and there will be payback. If you 
if you pray in a particular way or make a, a, a sacrifice to the fire, then good things will happen. And if you do it wrong or don't do it, bad things will happen. So that was, that was a common notion. And that is, you know, it's almost instinctive in some ways. We have this sense, uh, you know, uh, payback for, for how we behave. And he was aware of that. But he flipped that on its, uh, he flipped it over and said, it's about our intention. It doesn't matter um, if, if, if you're slicing someone's belly, it matters whether you're a surgeon trying to help them or a thief trying to rob them. You know, the intention is important. It's not just the raw behavior. Yeah? But what he was rebelling against might have been, been the fact that there seems absolutely no um, a relationship between, you know, doing a dance and rain. Whereas there For is, us. Right, right. But maybe, but whereas there is a relationship between you're, you're mean to somebody and then they're, you feel remember, they're mean to you. Remember he said some things occur because of karma, because of your intention. But some things occur because of changes in the weather. Yeah, the whole... Right, and so the confusion yeah. comes when we, con when we conflate our intention with our fate. The consequence, what happens to us, when we when we make those, so if we say, um, as I you know, as I've heard our monastic teachers say, you know, what happens to you is your karma. Death, death is our karma. It's coming. It is our karma for having been born, and for the intention of having been born. But that gets to be confusing. We talk about karma. We talking about what we're faced with, what goes around, comes around, what's, what's coming around, or is, are we talking about our intention? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we have to live with our intention. Yeah. When we look back over our lives and find uh, recollections that are pleasant and make us feel good about ourselves, they're things where we were generous, we were kind and friendly and compassionate, and the things that jump out at us that we, we, go, we cringe are things where we were nasty and and un, unthinking. Yeah. Wouldn't, I, I see karma as teaching us our intentions. Mm -hmm. That if I get a wrong intention and something and, and something comes in my life that jars me, mm -hmm. it's teaching me my intention to pull away from that intention and leave it. Mm -hmm. And I, I I have read that uh, karma wasn't from past events. Karma came into your life to teach you what you need to learn. Mm -hmm. there, there are a lot of, there are so many teachings on karma. You know, there is a, there is a, a, a lovely Tibetan teaching that uh, encourages you to regard all beings you encounter as enlightened beings, and they are present to teach you about yourself, about your own reaction to them and to help you purify yourself. So that, you know, those kinds of things can be skillful means. But, you know, and, 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 you know, and then we get the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I remember John Mitchell. Remember John Mitchell? Mm -hmm. Watergate. He was the attorney general and he, you know, he was testifying and saying, Oh, yes, well, I may have broken the law, but I had good intentions. I, I thought it was important that the president be reelected, so my intentions were good. <laughs> you know, and I, the, 
The road to hell is paved with greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> there are, and there, there are just a lot of speculative theories. The Buddha w- was not a fan of speculation. He said, look directly at yourself and see in yourself. We have to live with our intentions, whatever they are, and they become part of, like Louise Owens, they become part of our, our mental they appear for us. Yeah. I, I found the talk very, very helpful, interesting, and informative. And, and I also think um, it, it's good to just look at every culture through history and, and jillions of people you know today who are all looking for some kind of um, magical um, answer. Uh, and, and that a lot of things that we hear about karma and other belief systems um, are based on our, our longing for security and our, our, our human uh, just wanting there to be an answer, wanting to feel some kind of control over our life so that if we don't walk under a ladder, then we'll be safer. Um, and I think that while we're focusing on our intention as being the important thing in the day, it's also good to feel compassion for, for people who believe in something that we may not believe in. Mm-hmm. Because um, they're suffering they're just longing, as well. They're suffering and they're longing for some kind of feeling of, of that there's a plan somewhere. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to figure it out. The Buddha said the Dharma was not easy to see. He almost didn't teach because he said it was too obscure, you know, too hard to see. So focusing on attention, you know, when you look at, at, when you recall your past, the the skillful intentions are the ones that uh, are pleasant in the beginning, pleasant in the middle, and pleasant in recollection and the unskillful ones are not. And in a constantly changing world where there is no security, no security, anicca, impermanence, if there were security for a moment, it would be gone in the next moment. Just because, you know, and, and wanting that leaves us dissatisfied. Wanting that security is bound to produce dissatisfaction, dukkha, suffering. The only thing we are heir to, the only thing we possess are our actions, our intentions. And so we should craft them as skillfully. Find the way to abandon those that are going to be harmful to ourselves and to others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How much time do you spend analyzing that situation for? It depends on how big a bump. I, you know, I. Actually, it's been a very bumpy year, and I'm having a tendency to sort of uh-huh. be very hard on myself about I want to learn from these experiences so I don't repeat them. But yet, 
you know what I'm hearing. Yeah, I, I do know what you're saying. I was, uh, I was, I was teaching a Folsom prison last night, and some of the inmates had some of the same issues because they're, <laughs> they're left, and and for some of them, well, you know, it's a similar pattern. It may be a much more substantial bump. That's why I said how big a bump. Um, analyzing uh, is maybe, maybe not helpful, usually not, because it tends to drift into rationalization. But when we're looking back at something that, that, has, uh, that we've done that has, it causes us pain to recall because of the harm that we caused ourselves or someone else. For me, the, the, uh, the resolution, the salvation from that is, I mean, you can't change what happened. It happened as it happened. It was what it was, or it is what it was. It, it is what it was. You can quote me. <laughs> um, is, to, is to resolve that whatever it was that I was, whatever that intention was that gave rise to that unskillful and harmful action for myself and for others, I'm, not, I'm just not going there anymore. I'm done. Even if it costs me, I'm just not going there. Because, because you can't abandon, you can't, I mean, you can try to suppress the memories of what you've done and a harm that you've done. But the way to resolve it from here forward is, to, is, is first to recognize what it was. What was the intention there? And we say it was good or bad, but those are, those are evaluative. You, have to, you, you want to recall what, what it was you were trying to, to do, to be maybe smarter than or more powerful than. It was my way. You know, whatever it was, it was fear or anger, you know, I'm just not going there. And when I can, and the more deeply you can sense what that motivating intention was, the more deeply you'll recognize it, the sooner you'll recognize it when it shows up again, because these things show up again, you know. And so, and the idea is, ultimately, I mean, the Buddha's idea was to, to uproot the tendencies towards anger, and, and towards uh, greed. Uh, so is that helpful? For me, though, yeah. I, in order for me to realize what was my intention, what was I, I need to analyze. And, and so <clears throat> I will, like, walk and just you know, really think about it. By analyzing, I'm, I mean the kind of intellectualizing that... You sit down and you say, well, you start with the premise that I had good intentions and I was trying to make things better for everybody and um, that's why I made personal use of corporate funds <laughs> or whatever, you know. So, um, you know, I worked for a nonprofit. I, I embezzled all the money because I saw the, what the real, the real importance was over here. So, you know, so that kind of analysis not helpful. Looking more deeply, introspection, contemplation, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's why I'm responding to analysis as intellectual. Intellection, yeah. Well, I, I'm just thinking of my interactions with my daughter and husband, and also what you were saying, I can't, I mean, I think it was something that from the Buddha. Um, sometimes even when we are coming out of love, 
and wanting to help a family member, if they're not receptive or if there's, mm -hmm. you know, like, like with, let's say, a teenager, you just want them to be more responsible or you ask them to do something or even out of love, and they might just have such a horrible negative reaction. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of a different situation because then it's more dealing with letting go of the outcome that you well, yeah. You're, giving, you're offering the help and you're offering your love, and then it's maybe having to accept back a lot of negativity and yeah. not being. I know. I know. One of the well, Moose Song, who's one of my one of my teachers, he's uh, one of the f faculty people at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, said recently that the most important decision that was made that the that was made in the 2,500 years of the Buddha, of of the tradition was the Buddha's decision to remain a monk. He could have come back and been Solomon the Wise as a king, but he remained a monk. And it allowed him a certain purity of, of vision and to cultivate that very clearly. We're living as householders. So this is a big experiment for us. Because it's in Southeast Asia, you know, where the monks are the keepers of the Dharma and the and lay people practice the precepts and generosity, they don't do meditation. Monks often don't do meditation. They don't do the kind of study and monastic you know, we're 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 this is a you know, we're inventing this as we go along. So we try to take you know, the lessons that we can from the from the Buddha's teachings. We look I look to the Buddha refuge in the Buddha. We look to the Buddha for guidance. But then we have to play it out in our lives. And so when we try something and it doesn't work, what, what, uh, you know, where, is it my expectation of working? Is it a particular desire? You know, we, we analyze it and then, um, you know, use that, apply that to our, to our, uh, lives as they grow. Hopefully we become wiser as we go along. That's, that's, that's the intent, to cultivate wisdom. So I want to thank you for your attention and for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.